Church family, if you will, open up your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. The title of our message today is In His Dying. As you find Matthew chapter 26, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read the passage that I'm going to preach and we're going to pray God speaks to us through today. If you're able to stand, stand and follow along as I read. This is the Word of God. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, He went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of God for his church today. Would you be seated? When we think about accomplishments, we mostly think about things we do while we are living, right? I were to ask you, list some of the accomplishments of people who have lived years and years, maybe even centuries uh, before us. We would probably list things that those individuals did while they were alive. Rarely do we think of accomplishing something through our death. Now, there are ways to accomplish things through your death. I mean, think about soldiers who give their lives fighting for a noble cause, or rescue workers who give their lives in the process of rescuing someone. Certainly, their death meant something. They they accomplished something in their death. But other than that, we really don't think about death being a means of accomplishment. But I think that Scripture testifies to, to the truth that Jesus' death is where we find his greatest accomplishment. It's not in his living that we find his greatest accomplishment, but it is in his dying. Last week we asked the question, what did Jesus accomplish in his living? And we saw that through his living, Jesus revealed God's kingdom to us so that we would believe in him, the king. Specifically, Jesus clarified the standard of kingdom living and perfectly fulfilled the law of the kingdom and foreshadowed the removal of the curse in God's kingdom and proclaimed the good news of God's kingdom. He did accomplish many things in his life and all of that was good and all of that was very important, but none of those things were the main thing that Jesus came to accomplish. I want you to know today that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. 
Jesus himself said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You can't get a better mission statement, purpose statement for the life of Jesus than what came out of his own mouth. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And the way that Jesus would save sinners from their sin was through his death in their place, which means that Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. His life was essential but only as setting the stage for his death. If Jesus never died, then his life, which was full of amazing obedience and amazing teaching and amazing miracles, really does us no good. God's salvation plan for mankind centered upon the death of Jesus on the cross. Church, through his death, Jesus revealed God's plan of salvation for all who believe in him. In His living, He revealed God's kingdom to us and what life in the kingdom was like and the good news of this kingdom. But through His death, Jesus revealed God's plan of salvation for all who believe in Him. Now today I want us to look to Scripture to answer the question, what did Jesus accomplish in His dying? The short answer to that question is salvation. If you want a one-word answer to that question, what did Jesus accomplish in His dying, it would be the word salvation. But this wasn't just a random act of salvation. This was God's plan of salvation. You know, often when we think about Jesus dying on the cross for our sin, the main players, the main characters in our minds as we think of that divine transaction are Jesus and sinners. We think about Jesus on the cross dying for sinners. And it's good that we think that way. On the cross, Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our sin. Think about a verse that we probably know fairly well. It comes uh, from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But even in that verse, where we often focus in that verse on the exchange between our sin and Jesus' righteousness, we see that there's someone other than Jesus on the cross and us in our sin. Paul said in that verse in 2 Corinthians, He made Him to be sin. He made Him to be sin. Did you catch that? He made Him. So in that verse, there's a He and a Him before there's ever a we who are sinners. Obviously, we is referring to us. We are the sinners. Him is referring to Jesus, the one who died for our sin, who took our sin upon Himself. But who's the He? He made Him. He made Jesus. To become sin. Friends, the cross was not merely about us and Jesus the Son. The cross was about God the Father and God the Son. The cross was about God the Son accomplishing what was necessary for God the Father to provide salvation for sinners. There was a divine transaction between God the Father and God the Son as they worked together to provide this salvation for us. From a human perspective, we see soldiers nailing Jesus to a cross. But from God's perspective, we see God the Father nailing His Son to a cross. It's the reality of the death of Christ. In His death, Jesus was obeying His Father's will. He was enduring His Father's wrath. And He was fulfilling His Father's Plan. Another way to say it is that there was way more going on behind the scenes when it came to Jesus' death than there was going on out on the stage that the humans there could see. 
On the stage, we see scared disciples, angry religious leaders, immoral political leaders, mocking soldiers, screaming crowds, a crown of thorns, a cross, a hammer, nails, blood, cries of agony, and a final breath. But behind the scenes, we see a spiritual battle for the souls of mankind. A spiritual battle for the souls of mankind. We see a son wrestling with his father's will. We see a father keeping his eternal word. And we see that whips and nails were not the greatest means of suffering experienced by Jesus as he was beaten and crucified. You see, as the whips slashed and the thorns punctured and the nails pierced, what was happening behind the scenes was God the Father was pouring out His eternal wrath, unleashing it upon His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father sacrificing His only Son for you and me. And I think one of the best places that we see the behind the scenes action of Jesus' death is in the Garden of Gethsemane several hours prior to the crucifixion of Jesus. I think if we really want to understand what was happening as Jesus hung on the cross, we've got to see what was happening a few hours earlier in the Garden when Jesus was on His knees. It was in this garden on the Mount of Olives where the spiritual battle for the souls of men raged within the heart of Jesus. And what we find there is a great explanation of what Jesus would accomplish just a few hours later through His death. I want to share with you three things today. Three things about Jesus' accomplishment in His dying as revealed in His words spoken in the Garden of Gethsemane. The first truth in this passage that we just read a moment ago is this. first truth I want you to know is this. In His dying, Jesus obeyed the Father's will. In His dying, Jesus obeyed the Father's will. The scene opens there in verse 36 with Jesus taking His disciples to a place called Gethsemane. There was a garden here where olives were grown and Jesus is going there to pray. Very likely this was a regular spot of prayer for Jesus and his disciples. Now, think about the context. He's just finished the Passover meal with his disciples. Judas has left to prepare for the betrayal of Jesus. Jesus has just prophesied at the Last Supper, at the Passover meal, of his death and resurrection. And Peter has just declared that he would die rather than deny Jesus. That kind of sets the stage. And they enter the garden. Jesus tells His disciples to sit down while He goes to another place in the garden to pray. But He does take uh, Peter and James and John, His three closest disciples, with Him a little bit further. And the text says that He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Those are heavy words in the Greek language. Sorrowful and troubled. It goes on to say, Jesus said, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here, Jesus said, and watch with me. Stay awake with me. Jesus knew that His suffering and death were only hours away. He knew the agony of what awaited Him. And He was already in agony as He considered what was just ahead for Him. And He makes a small request of His three closest disciples. His three best friends on the earth. A a very simple request. He says, watch. And another way to say that is stay awake. Stay awake. That was his request. Just stay awake. 
Why, why didn't he say that? I, I think that, that he knew he was going to go a little bit further to pray, and, and he still wanted their company. He probably didn't go far enough that they couldn't hear what he was saying. He just went a few more steps away. And he, in his humanity, he wanted the company of his friends to know that they were there with him as he was facing this incredible trial. The text says, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returns to his disciples, and what happens? He finds them not awake. He finds them sleeping, and he says to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Peter, who just said, I'll die for you, Jesus. He can't even keep his eyes open for Jesus. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, Jesus says. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus goes, and he he prays again, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And the text says, Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, and he said the same thing. He said the same words again. If this is the only way I must drink from this, then your will be done. I think one of the clear points of this account is the contrast between Jesus and his disciples. His disciples failed to obey, and Jesus chose to only obey. They were told to stay awake, but they fell asleep. He was told to die, and He was surrendering to His Father's will. And we'll talk a little bit more in in detail in a moment about the the meaning of the cup and drink and what that means, but just for right this second, know that He's referring to His his fast approaching death. That's what He means by the cup that I'm going to drink. It's talking about His death. He's pleading with His Father for another way, but in the end, He is obedient to the Father's will. Not only do I want you to notice the obedience of Jesus, but I want you to notice the Father's will in this. Right? When it comes to obedience, there's got to be someone who's making a command of you in order for you to obey. What is Jesus obeying? He's obeying really a command from the Father to die. It was God's will for Jesus to die. This wasn't Jesus saying, what do you think, God? You think I should die for these people? And then God saying, well, son, if, if... if you think that's a good idea, if that's something you really want to do, then yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll have your back, I'll be behind you. You just go ahead and do what you want. No, that's not what's happening. God's will was to put Jesus to death. And Jesus is here in the garden choosing in this moment to obey His Father's will. Though a few hours later, it would look like Jesus was bowing to the will of His accusers and bowing to the will of the Jewish crowd and bowing to the will of the Roman soldiers behind the scenes, what was happening is Jesus is bowing not to their wills, but to the will of His Father. Isaiah's prophecy of the coming Messiah states it so clearly. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10 says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to death. Sounds a lot like what Paul said. And he made him to be sin. Church, God willed the death of his son. God willed to kill his son to save you and me from our sin. Praise God. Let that sink in for just a minute. We are not saved because he, uh, because we willed the death of Jesus. 
If you believed in Jesus, you are saved because the Father willed the death of Jesus in your place. Jesus died according to Father's will. Jesus provided salvation according to the Father's will. Speaking of God, James says to the first century Christians, he said, by his own will, he brought you forth by the word of truth. He's talking about our salvation. By his own will, he has given you salvation. No church, all praise and all glory and all honor for our salvation goes to the God who willed our salvation and his son who obeyed the father's will. Listen, the temptation for Jesus to disobey was very real. Why is he in agony here? It's because he is being tempted to disobey his father's will. The temptation to retreat from death was real. When he told his disciples to watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation, and then he turned away to pray some more, he was simply telling them to do the very thing that he was doing in that moment. Praying so that he would not fall into temptation. It wasn't just any prayer. He prayed a prayer of surrender. He prayed this prayer, not as I will, but as you will. Let that be done. And it was the Father's will to crush him. You to hear the words of Paul to the Philippians when he said of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, hear these words, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, Jesus' greatest act of obedience, he... His whole life was full of obedience. He never sinned, but his greatest act of obedience was bowing to his Father's will to sacrifice him on the cross. And in his dying, Jesus accomplished our salvation by bowing to his Father's will. John wrote this, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, talking about our second birth, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God's will to save. And Jesus obeyed his Father's will. It's the only way you and I could say that we are saved today. Second truth I want you to see here in this Garden of Gethsemane passage is this. In His dying, Jesus endured the Father's wrath. In His dying, church, Jesus endured the Father's wrath. And we're asking this question, what did Jesus accomplish in His dying? But perhaps we would also ask this question, why did Jesus even have to die? I mean, why does this even have to take place? Both of those are good questions. What did he come to accomplish in his death? And why did he even have to die in the first place? Well, Jesus had to die because the wages of sin is death. And he came to rescue us from the wages of our sin. Death is the punishment. And so he had to die. Which means that when he died, he was accomplishing our rescue from sin and its eternal consequences. He was dying to rescue us from all that we deserve because we are sinners. I want you to notice the specific words Jesus used in His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. In His first prayer, He prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, 
not as I will, but as you will. Let this cup pass from me. So we got that imagery in our mind of a cup. And then his second and third prayers, we know the third prayer is what's in there because it says he said the same thing as he said in the second prayer. So second and third prayers, he says, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So this imagery of a cup and drinking from this cup. What in the world is he talking about? I mean, they've already left the, the Last Supper. Supper's over. They're now in a garden. What's going on? Well, to put it simply, he is referring to the wrath of God towards sin and evil and wickedness, whatever other words you want to put in the blank there. The wrath of God. The wrath of God. Say, so what is that? What's well, God's righteous anger towards sinful people resulting in the eternal death of sinful people? It's God's righteous anger, anger towards us throughout Scripture. God's wrath is compared to the fruit of the vine, pressed down and squeezed into a cup and then poured out upon sinful humanity. Jesus is picking this language very precisely. He's referring back to all the imagery in the Old Testament. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup of foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17 says, Wake yourself! Wake yourself! Stand up, O Jerusalem! You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk it to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Hear the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, 15 and 16. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Jerusalem and the nations, that is all of humanity, worthy of the wrath of God being poured out. Even in Revelation chapter 16, verse 19, we read about this cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. So this cup that Jesus is referring to in the garden as He prays to His Father is none other than the cup of the wrath of God. And friend, just in case you're tempted to think lightly of this wrath, I just want you to think, think about this. Is Jesus making a big deal out of just a little cup? I think not. I think not. Let me read to you just a little bit more from Jeremiah. I read you a couple of verses a second ago from Jeremiah 25. Let me read you what comes after that. Of this wrath, this cup of wrath, Jeremiah prophesied this. The Lord will roar from on high. From His holy habitation, He'll utter His voice. He will roar mightily against His fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. And the wicked He will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be dung on the surface of the ground. Wail, you shepherds, and cry out, and roll in ashes, you lords of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come, and you shall fall like a choice vessel. 
No refuge will remain for the shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds, and the wail of the lords of the flock. For the Lord, Yahweh, is laying waste their pasture, and the peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, He has left His lair. For their hand has become uh, their land has become a waste because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. Friends, church family, this cup is no small matter. This wrath is real. And just in case, and just in case we think that the fury of God was just the God of the Old Testament, as some people would say. Just in case we think, well, that was just the angry God of the past, but He's not like that anymore. Let me read to you from the book of Revelation about what is coming in the future for those who fail to worship God Most High. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10 through 11 says this of those who ultimately fail to worship God. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath. That one who, who fails to worship God all who fail to worship God will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger. And He, that person who fails to worship the Lord, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Church family, this is no small cup. And every sinner deserves to drink from it. And drinking from this cup means eternal wrath from God forever and ever and ever and ever. Now let's go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Is it strange then that Jesus would say, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Is it strange then, knowing what this cup entails, that Jesus would ask the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me? Jesus knew that He was getting ready to endure the eternal wrath of Almighty God. Many others had been and would be crucified, but only one endured the wrath of God for your sin and mine as He hung upon the cross. Only one drank from this cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. So what did Jesus accomplish in His dying? Jesus endured the wrath of God on our behalf through His death in our place. And church, it's only because, God, that, only because Jesus bore God's wrath that we can be forgiven of our sin and be reconciled back into His kingdom. He purchased our pardon through His blood. He redeemed our souls through His death. He lifted us out of our sin as He was lifted up upon the cross. He endured the Father's wrath so that we can enjoy the Father's love and and presence, grace and mercy, the riches of His kingdom forever and ever and ever. Scripture speaks of another cup in Psalm chapter 116, verse 13. The psalmist writes, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Friend, you know what that means? You know what it means for us, church? It means that you and I can drink from this cup of salvation because Jesus drank from the cup of God's wrath. 
Jesus obeyed the Father's will and Jesus endured the Father's wrath. And then third, third, in His dying, Jesus fulfilled the Father's plan. Jesus fulfilled the Father's plan. One of my favorite things about the Bible, you probably hear me say this before, one of my favorite things about the Bible is that it tells one complete story. It's not just a mixture of random stories. It is once from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the end of Revelation. It's telling one complete story. One of my favorite things about God is that everything He does was planned from the beginning. Everything He does was planned from the beginning. One of my favorite things about salvation is that it was not an afterthought of God. It was not a plan B. Think about what happens for a moment after Christ leaves the garden. Minutes later, after He finishes praying, the garden becomes filled with a great crowd of people carrying swords and clubs. One of His disciples whose feet Jesus had just washed betrays Jesus. The crowd grabs Jesus, seizes Him, arrests Him, and carries Him away. And then a a, a mix between a trial and a riot, I think we could say that, was held. His false accusations were hurled at Jesus. One of Jesus' closest disciples denies that He even knows who Jesus is. Three times, then Jesus is bound. He's handed over to the Roman governor. The crowd demands, yelling in the streets, crucify Him, crucify Him. Soldiers whip Jesus with a multi-lashed whip which had pieces of bones and broken metal in it. They hit Him, spit upon Him, mocked Him, pressed a crown of thorns into His head, and they put a cross upon His back and told Him to carry it. At this point, He's so beaten down, He can't even carry it. they got to get somebody else to carry it for him up the hill called Golgotha. Then they stretch him out, nail him to that cross, stand it upright, continue to mock him as he suffocates to death. And then to make sure he was dead, they thrust the sword into his side so that Scripture says the blood and the water poured out. Now, from a human perspective, it looks like complete chaos. Right? It looks like complete chaos. It looks like everything is going wrong. Jesus is the King. He is the Messiah. He is supposed to deliver, not die. He is supposed to save people, not surrender to His enemies. And so, from a human perspective, we ask this question, did God mess up? I'm certain that the disciples were asking that question as they ran for their lives. Did God mess up? Is He going to have to come up with another plan now? But the testimony of Scripture is, no, not at all. No, not at all. You see, what seemed to be a scene of chaos was actually a scene of God's complete control. What seemed to be a display of divine weakness was actually a display of divine strength. And what seemed to be the epitome of plans gone haywire was actually the epitome of everything going exactly according to plan. I want you to notice Jesus' words at the end of the Garden of Gethsemane account. He finishes praying. He goes back to his disciples. Once again, finds them sleeping. And this is what he says. Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let us rise and be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want you to notice very carefully what Jesus says. He said the hour is at hand. 
the hour is at hand. Now, Jesus didn't mean, hey, guys, it's 8 o'clock. Hey, guys, it's 9 o'clock. Hey, guys, it's 10 o'clock. It's not what he meant. The phrase, the hour is at hand, means so much more than just a, a time of day or a time of night. Jesus meant this when he said, the hour is at hand. He meant the time for the Father's eternal plan of salvation which centers upon me dying on the cross to bear His wrath is now here. And I'm ready. That's what He meant when He said, get up and let's go. The hour is at hand. The time for God's plan of salvation to be fulfilled is here. Now get up. I'm ready. Let's go. In other words, everything that is about to happen is exactly according to plan. Several weeks later, Peter, who thought the plans were getting all messed up, as seen by his action of cutting the ear off of one of the men who was arresting Jesus. You can read about that a few verses later. That same Peter, who thought, well, this isn't right. Let me pull my sword out and start chopping up people. A few weeks later, he would reveal his change of heart and a new understanding of God's eternal plan. Standing before a great crowd in the city of Jerusalem, Peter said these words in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, he said, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, catch these words, delivered up, He's talking about his death there, delivered up to death. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What a transformation took place in Peter's heart and life. He he thought, oh no, everything is messed up. They're arresting Jesus. And a few weeks later, he stands up and testifies to a large crowd. Everything that just happened a few weeks ago happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus' death was all according to plan and not human planning. Not the planning of the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes. The planning of God Almighty. This was the hour fulfilling the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God said that a man would be born of woman and that Satan would inflict him with injury, but that he would inflict Satan with complete destruction. This was the hour fulfilling the promise made to Abraham that God would bless all the families of the earth through him. This was the hour fulfilling the picture given through the sacrificial system of an innocent one dying in place of the guilty. This was the hour where God, who according to Ephesians chapter 1, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That God, who in love predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. I'm just reading from Ephesians chapter 1. This was the hour where God would pour out the blood of His Son so that we could rejoice with what the Apostle Paul went on to say in Ephesians chapter 1. That in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan 
for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Friends, the cross was not an accident. It was God's plan of love and mercy and grace towards sinners like you and me, a plan He had from before the foundation of the world. Jesus knew the plan. Jesus resisted the temptation to act against the plan. Jesus said, get up, let's go, my betrayer is here. And listen, folks, he wasn't saying get up and let's run and hide. Because he got up and he walked right into death. He humbly and resolutely, having already waged spiritual warfare on his knees, walked straight into death and fulfilled the Father's plan. Father's plan was fulfilled as this one who clarified the standard of living in God's kingdom died to save people who failed to live up to that standard. God's plan was finally fulfilled as the one who worked miracles chose not to use His miracle working power to come down from the cross. God's plan was fulfilled as the one who who, who preached boldly the good news of the kingdom remained silent in the face of His accusers, allowing them to kill Him so that the message of the kingdom would truly be good news. Listen, the Father's plan was fulfilled not in Jesus' living ultimately, but in Jesus' dying. Jesus came to die. And Jesus died to save. And it was all according to God's plan of salvation for all who believe in Jesus. Jesus said this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's the choice before us today. To believe in Jesus or to endure the wrath of God. And I ask you today, men and women and teenagers and boys and girls, have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Have you trusted and believed in His death in your place? Have you placed your faith in this Jesus who is God's plan of salvation? If not, then why not? What is it that you are waiting for? We are like the disciples, sleeping when we should be praying, rebelling when we should be obeying, falling into temptation when we should be fleeing from temptation. But praise God, church, Jesus died for sinners like them. And Jesus died for sinners like me. And Jesus died for sinners like you. So what did Jesus accomplish in His dying? Church, He accomplished salvation for all who will believe in Him. We close with two questions. If you haven't believed in Jesus for salvation, will you believe today? Will you trust in what He's done on the cross today for you? Will you receive His free gift of salvation? I know that was three questions, but just pretend they were all one, okay? Listen, you must believe in Christ to be saved. And then second question, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, who are we sharing this good news with? Who needs to hear? Who in our lives needs to believe? Who do we need to say, Jesus came and He came to save and He did that by coming to die for you on the cross? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your love and mercy and grace in our lives. God, Your eternal plan culminated 
and this, this cross, this, this instrument of death. Father, the last thing that, that was on anyone's mind when it come, came to your plan of deliverance. God, God, there in the garden, Jesus bowing to your will. Father, there, him realizing that he is getting ready to drink your wrath. Not wrath that he deserves, but wrath that sinners deserve. Deserve for all of eternity. And He's going to experience that in just a few hours there upon the cross. Father, Him knowing what Your plan is. He knew exactly what was coming because it was Your eternal plan. And Him saying, get up, let's go. The hour is at hand. And Him walking resolutely and humbly right into death for us. God, this is the good news of the Gospel of Jesus and we must believe it. God, I pray if there's someone here right now that has never believed in Jesus, God, I pray that they would confess their sin to You. God, that they would give thanks to You that You have made a way of salvation through Jesus. And God, I pray that they would ask You to save them from their sin because of what Jesus has done on the cross. God, in just a moment, we're going to lift our voices in song. Oh God, we ought to be the most joyful people on earth. Those of us who have had our sins washed away. Those who, of us who have had the, the chains of our sin broken. Those of us who have had the eternal wrath that we should deserve exchanged for eternal life. God, we ought to lift our voices and Praise to You, God Almighty, who has made a way for us to be saved. Who has sacrificed His only Son. God, You are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. And so may we give that to You now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.